do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal. And I'm here tonight with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Good. As I was mentioning to you off camera, I'm exhausted. I was volunteering at this prairie urban farm, um, which is out of the university farm. And it's an organic mm-hmm. farm that raises vegetables for all kinds of people around the city, you know, mainly immigrant groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, <laughs> physical work outside is is exhausting. So uh, how are you doing? Especially in this smoke, eh? I'm finding I'm tireder at the end of the day and just achier and my eyes are stingier and just from this smoke. Could be. It was not as bad today as it was the previous day. It was a little better today, yeah. And uh, the good news is, because I was asking people on uh, Twitter, like, you know, because we've had rain forecast and it hasn't come about, but I guess it's really been pouring. Thank goodness in northwestern Alberta today, it's been pouring in places like Grand Prairie and um, so that's great news. Alrighty, man, Bruce, we're going to be starting our um, summer series. Well, mm-hmm. I guess it's summer of the keep, hold or fold in which we look at key members of the Edmonton Oilers and we render our judgment on them. Should the Oilers keep them? Should they hold for now and make a decision later this summer or should they fold and actively seek to replace this individual? Because you know why we're doing this? Because we like to sit in judgment of other people. That's what we do here. That's our thing. Yeah, even even <laughs> as it's uh, howling into the wind at uh, certain points, should we keep <laughs> hold or fold on this guy who has a no-movement contract and seven years left on his contract? Well, I think we're probably keeping him, so we might as well say keep. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not is... everybody. But it's a lot of players. But uh, we're we're obviously going to be focusing in on the on the guys that are on the hot seat. The modern NHL, um, with its long term contracts, there there might be players you might like to fold on. But yeah. you just, I mean, this is one thing where you definitely take into consideration their contracts, and um, uh, whether it's possible. You know, the consequences of folding on people, you know, obviously the the obvious one is Jack Campbell, who, you know, most many in the fan base will will say, get rid of that guy. But you you cannot get rid of that guy. And and we'll we'll deal with this in a a future podcast. But tonight, Bruce, we're dealing with two people you could get rid of because there'd be no cap repercussions if you decided to get rid of these people. They could be gotten rid of, and all you'd have to do is have Daryl Cates pay many million dollars more out of his wallet to replace them uh, and bring in new people. The And they are Oilers coach Jay Woodcroft and Oilers GM Ken Holland. Uh, you know, there's Kyle Dubas is a free agent right now, Bruce. Think about that. He's won a playoff series now, so that's got to shoot his value up by tens of millions of dollars, no doubt. Uh not our money. Not our money. Even though people sure seem to mention Ken Holland being the most expensive GM in the NHL anytime they're mad at him. It always <laughs> seems to come up somehow, even though it doesn't show up on the salary cap anywhere. That's Indeed. just between him and Daryl Cates. Yeah, that's uh, that's the Daryl <laughs> Cates issue. All right, keep holder fold. Let's start with uh, let's start with the GM since he's the big boss of Mundo. Mm. Keep holder fold, Bruce. Uh, I'm going to go straight down the middle with hold, and I think that's what Ken Holland himself is doing by declaring himself to be playing out the last year of his five-year contract with an area whisper or sound of him uh, potentially getting renewed as many management coaches typically are when they have a year to go on their contract. Uh, but the whole situation, he's he's in there for this year, and he may well be in the stage where he's ready to, you know, make one last big push for that cup and then and then uh, uh, transition, uh, whether upstairs or into an advisor role or whatever. I mean, he's my age, David. He's an old man now, Ken Holland. He's older. He's four weeks older than me. So he's got to be getting, you know, kind of tired and iron poor blood, all that kind of stuff, right? I mean... Bruce, I never see you that way. I don't see people your age that way in the least. And I, I feel you got another 20, 30 years ahead on the Cult of Hockey podcast. So 
You're right. a keeper. No. And I think Ken Holland is a keeper. Here okay, too. yeah, go for and it. And Bruce, I think he's indicated strongly that he wants to stay on, actually. After? Yeah. yeah, like he's keep this year into this coming year. He's not yes. changing his role this year. Yeah, so he's keep for this. You know, I'm just looking yeah, at this that's year. That's what I mean by the hold. We're now, now, through this year and then let's see. Okay. But here, here's what he, he said about um, the uh, in his press conference this past week. He talked about how himself and his coaches and everyone else in the organization are digging in to get better digging in to win the Stanley Cup. And here's his quote. But there's 31 organizations digging in. That's why you, when you win the Stanley Cup, boy, do you party. Because it's not a one-year quest. It's a lifetime quest. You know what I mean? You can't party enough when you win that thing. It's a party machine because it's so hard to get your hands on. And I want you to know, I want our fans to know my players are devastated. They're devastated for themselves. They're devastated for, for the fans. But we're going to get off the mat and we're going to get back at it in September. He just struck me as a guy who is cup hungry, who's got that fire burning to win another Stanley Cup. And, um, you know, um, there's lots of people. And I say this in all seriousness. There are many people. Who are extremely able into their night into their 70s and into their early 80s and i see you know if ken holland is taking care of himself i i think that job's a total meat grinder by the way mm -hmm. but you know if he's been taking care of himself and he's good to go i mean look at lou, lou lamorello he's 137 mm -hmm. and he's still running the new york islanders mm -hmm. so ken holland is just halfway through his career at this point and i i think he may stay on i he i just think he wants to stay on and it may be a good thing bruce um he seems like an old dog who can learn some new tricks i mean he's got a son there who's a big analytics guy i could see the oilers uh they're already into that i mean they're already into uh, i think they're into the micro analytics the high resolution stats in a big way um and uh you know i don't think they're the leading edge in that but i i think holland uh is in, involved in that kind of thinking, that kind of analysis, and certainly has other people who are deeply interested in it. So, um, which is a big criticism of him, right? And, and uh, that he might be a little old school, but he's old school in a good way. I think he understands, he, he has he has a profound understanding of team building, of what it takes to win a Stanley Cup, to bring together a group of people and to build a team who will uh, compete for a Stanley Cup year after year. And he, and he's he's done it at Edmonton, so I'm in the keep category. That I'm not averse to him signing a new contract if if that's at this point, if um if that comes up. Although I I don't think it would happen till after next season. Right. Well, yeah, I say let's say see how he does next season and and reevaluate. And I mean the team is promising, but it's uh, you know the time for a cup is now, and it would be a good time for Ken Holland as well this upcoming season. You know, to, to oh, make yeah. uh, a big push at it. And then he can go out on top uh, or not as he chooses. But uh, uh, I, I thought there were smoke signals suggesting that this will be his last kick at the can. And it could be a total misread by me. But in the meantime, I'd say hold him. He's, you know, he's done some good things with this team, but his record is hardly spotless. Okay, let's, uh, in evaluating Ken Holland, and in evaluating Jay, Jay Woodcroft, we'll do our, we'll go now, we'll shift formats slightly to the two good things, two bad things, and two numbers for each of them in terms of evaluation. What is your good thing, Bruce, about uh, Ken Holland? Yeah, well, certainly from the season just passed where the Oilers uh, uh, came on strong at the end of the season and then into the second round of the playoffs, uh, the turning point of the season for the team was the acquisition of, uh, of uh, defensive workhorse Matthias Ekholm. Uh, just before the trade deadline in a very big deal with uh, Nashville Predators in which the Oilers pried loose uh, Ekholm with three more years to run on his contract, albeit age 32 to 35, and uh, uh, paid a pretty dear price for him in the uh, person of Tyson Berry, who was a fairly useful, uh, I'd say, middle-of-the-roster defenseman uh, and uh, good on the power play, but uh, they had a replacement in mind for him. Uh, so they used his cap space 
Uh, but they also uh, had to throw in last year's uh, first-round draft pick, Reed Schaefer, this year's first-round draft choice. And then they also swapped out a fourth for a sixth, which I'm guessing is exactly what it cost to uh, uh, get 250000 retention on uh, uh, Ekholm for each of the next four years. Like, that's an ongoing commitment from Nashville. So that's what that was probably about. So that's a pretty heavy price, you know, a, a good defenseman plus basically two first round draft choices for Ekholm. But in Ekholm, they got uh, a guy who, who really filled a hole and filled a couple of holes on the, on the uh, uh, second or first uh, pairing, depending on how you slice it. Uh, I'll just say definitely top four, uh, where he was basically second in ice time and the other guy was also a lefty, so they kind of flipped around in, in uh, minutes from one night to the next, him and Nurse. Uh, either way, the Oilers went from a top two team with two bottom pairings to a top four team with one bottom pairing in one fell swoop with that trade. And at the same time, uh, uh, as a bonus, uh, Holland, or the team, chose to insert uh, Evan Bouchard into the role as his partner on the second pairing and to give him Barry's former uh, function running the uh, deadliest power play of all time. And uh, he uh, uh, and Bouchard rose to that challenge and the pairing between him and Ekholm was just ideal. It really paid dividends in multiple ways. So Ekholm coming in, I thought he provided a little bit of cushion to all the other defensemen, whether they were technically or, or arguably above or below him on the depth chart, he certainly gave Nurse uh, a little bit of a breather from taking on all of the heavy minutes. And he certainly gave Kulak probably a little more breathing room on the third pairing where he's very effective as opposed to the second pairing where he's treading water, uh, Brett Kulak. And he gave room to... Uh, Vincent DeHarnay to shine as his partner on the penalty kill unit. And he, uh, up and down the roster, it seemed like his influence, other than uh, for, for Philip Rover, who lost his ice time a little bit, uh, the arrival of Ekholm was uh, solid. And the Oilers went from there until the very last two games of the season. So from March 1st, when he played his first game, uh, until... The middle of May when he played his last game, the Oilers had one two-game losing streak, and that was in games five and six against Vegas. They gone all that time without ever losing so many as two games in a row that the Ekholm trade had so solidified the the makeup of the team. So the um, the main cost of the Ekholm trade was uh, um, a first-round draft pick this coming draft, correct? Yes. And Reed Schaefer, yes. who was the first pick of the last draft, and those are that's the main, the main cost yeah. of it. And so it's interesting, you know, it's it's going to be what is that a mid twenties pick this time, early twenties pick? Where did the orders something something in there? Yeah, yeah twenty five so or right in around there. Yeah, those picks. This is apparently a really deep draft, so those picks have about a one in four chance of being a good NHL player in time. And Reed Schaefer. He was drafted 32nd overall. He's a big, really big, aggressive forward. And I think he's got about a one in four chance of uh, becoming a good NHL player as well. So they don't, it's not, it's those picks aren't like top 10 picks. No. Or top five picks or even, you know, top 15. You know, you're, you're giving up something. If you give them up year after year after year, I mean, you can find good players there. But chances are it takes a while for them to develop, and chances are that they don't. Most of them don't pan out as NHLers, is the truth. So um, the thing I liked about that trade, Bruce, mm-hmm. aside from his outstanding play, Matthias Ekholm's outstanding play when he got here, is he's got three more years on his deal. Yeah. And so it wasn't a rental. It was you're trading for a player. You gave up a lot, but you're trading for a player who in this – super important window when Connor McDavid and the Andrei Settler in the last years of their deal, but also Ryan Nugent Hopkins, Zach Hyman, Darnell Nurse, and Evander Kane are still in the prime of their career or hopefully near prime or, or, or prime of their career. These guys are getting older. The clock's yes. ticking on this team on a certain yes. level. 
So it was imperative that you brought in another defenseman who can really play some hockey in the top four. And now they have, they've got at least three of them in Nurse, Evan Bouchard, and Ekholm. And if Cody Cece's healthy, maybe they have four. I mean, this is going to be one of the debates of the summer is yep. can you can you get a better player than Cody Cece for that amount of money? Um, and um, we won't get into that tonight. But a uh, hell of a trade. I, I agree. It's like a, it, it, even now it stands out as the master trade of the deadline. I mean, you'd have to look at Carolina, Florida, Vegas, and the other. I mean, Vegas added Barbashev. He's made a difference. Um, with with uh, the with the cap space from Stone, yes, they did. That's it. That's the. But well, we won't challenge. mention that here. We won't get into that. Bruce, my good thing is I th- I really um, for years and years and years, one of the defining features of the decade of darkness was the utter inability of the Edmonton Oilers to find depth forwards for your third and fourth line who could come in and contribute and make a difference, a positive contribution to the team winning. It was it was a, a horror, horror show over the years. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just, de- you know, sometimes it was even higher up players. And I'll just give you a brief list of the decade of darkness forwards who were brought in to help for those roles. And either, either up from the farm team or traded for... Side is free agents. I'm ready. Ben Eager, Gilbert Brule, Patrick Thorison, Ryan Patoni, Jean-Francois Jacques, Joffrey Lupul, Robert Nielsen, Chris Vandevelt, Alice Kotelik, Patrick O'Sullivan, Eric Belanger, Leonard Petrell, Magnus Piarvi, Darcy Hortichak, Jared Smithson, Niall Yakupov, Magnus, oh, I got Piarvi twice here, Boyd Gordon, Mike Brown, Jesse Yowansu, Will Acton, Teddy Purcell, Benoit Pouliot, David DeHarnay, Rob Klinkhammer, Laurie Korpakoski, Kyle Brodziak, Pontus Aberg, Milan Lucic, Ryan Spooner, to- Tobias Reeder, Mike Camilleri, Colin Fraser, Yusi Jokin, and Ryan O'Mara, and Valentin Zykov. <laughs> All right. Is that an order of games played? No, it was in. It was just I have an order. It's kind of when they join the team, generally oh, speaking. Okay. Now, listen. When Holland first got here, he also had some some tough signings, right? He had some tough signings: Marcus Granlin, Riley Sheehan, Patrick Russell, James Neal, Gaetan Haas, Thomas Yurcho, Joachim Nigard, Brendan Perlini, Tyler Ennis, Dominic Dominic Cahoon, Andreas Athanasio, Kyle Turris, Colton Sevier, Derek Broussard. There's a lot of guys who didn't pan out initially with him. But Bruce, finally this year, it seemed to work out pretty well. I mean, it started working out a little bit earlier on. You know, they brought in Josh Archibald, who was a fairly decent player for a couple years. Um, You know, and then they bring in Zach Hyman is a free agent and Evander Kane is free agents. And the Kane thing especially was was absolutely massive for this franchise. I still believe it changed the um, it, the vibe around the team. And it was a really controversial move that some fans awesome. really hated. Uh, it was a move that many GMs wouldn't make, but he yes. made it and it's paid dividends on the ice for this team. And Evander Kane, since he's been here, by all accounts, has been pretty uh, positive uh, member of this community so um but he's also there's this year we we, on the bottom lines we saw ryan mcleod who was drafted by shirelli but promoted and developed under holland Derek ryan who was signed by holland uh fogel warren fogel who was traded for by holland matthias janmark signed by holland clean costin traded for by holland um now there's a couple of players, Pulley, RV, and Yamamoto, who are around this year who were uh, kind of holdovers also from Shirley. But <clears throat> there's just a number of these guys, and I, I'm thinking mainly of Costin, Ryan, Fogel, and Janmark, um, who just really helped those bottomless. And, and Nick Bukestad, he's on the list as well. I got to add him here to my chart. Mm-hmm. Um, first, he did a really solid job in rounding out the depth of this team. And um, it's not why the Oilers started the playoffs. Those, you know, the the line of uh, Fogel, uh, Ryan McLeod, and Derek Ryan was one of the Oilers' best lines. And uh, it's been a long time since we've been able to say that about a line other than the first or second line on this team. That the third line in the playoffs really came through. 
and made a difference. And Clean Costin and Yamamoto, when they were together, um, you know, it's kind of a fourth line. That also worked out for a few games. So I just, you know, good for Ken Holland. He was finally able to identify a whole group of players who are panning out as bottom line players for the Edmonton Oilers. And even Devin Shore in the second half of the year um, played really strong hockey. I don't know if he played well enough to earn another contract, but um, he played well when he got in the second half after a fairly mediocre previous 12 months, I'd say. so. I, just, I suspect they'll offer him one year at the minimum. Sure, and, maybe. Yeah, and I suspect he'll take it. And it may even have a two-way component in it or, you know, because there's every chance he'll spend time in the AHL. I looked it up today. He got moved 10 times in a seven-week span this year, up and down to Bakersfield. And back. <laughs> wow. Officially 10 times in a seven-week span. And that didn't count one time that he spent on waivers as well, which was a different kind of transaction. So, so yeah, David, in your... Uh, 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 pick of the forwards. I mean, since Holland got here in 20, 2019, the bottom six or bottom nine, depending on what they're doing with uh, uh, McDavid and Drysaddle, whether they're together or apart, but when they're on the bench, the last three years, they already scored 39% of the goals when they were on the bench, which is atrocious because they were playing, you know, uh, better part of half the game without the, the big guys on the ice. And this uh, at five on five. This year they soared all the way to fifty-five percent. Wow! And yeah, like fifty percent is fantastic from your bottom six. If your bottom six is breaking even, then, you, then your top guys are doing the damage. But fifty-five percent is off the charts. And then they were fifty-seven percent in round one of the playoffs, and then in round two, mind your small sample, uh, three, four, seven against thirty percent. But that was one of a few things that went wrong. But during the season, a big part of the order of success, including against the Kings, was that their uh, uh, third and fourth and sometimes second, third and fourth lines uh, were limiting the damage, especially they were good on the defensive side of the puck. Just uh, uh, one, uh, just under two goals against per 60 this year and 1.3 in the playoffs, like really sort of clamping things down. But uh, to be honest, it was the big boys in the playoffs who didn't post the numbers that they needed offensively. So, I mean, they got good numbers, but not that good. What is your uh, bad thing about Holland, Bruce? Yeah. So I think, yeah, you have the kind of thing I was going to take, but I guess I don't know that I really want to blame this on Holland, but because uh, I didn't disagree with either signing when they happened. But the uh, uh, extensions, uh, significant raises of uh, uh, Kyle Yamamoto, Yesipul Yarvi, uh, and you could argue Evander Kane if you if you stick with my main discussion point, which is that in each case their salaries went up substantially, and their production went down fairly sub- substantially. Last year Yamamoto had 20 goals. Uh, Paul Yarby had 15, and they were both making $1.175 million. This year, they both got bumped to the $3 million range. Yamamoto for two years, uh, JP for one. This time, Yamamoto scored 10 goals, and Paul Yarby got five. They were both down 10 goals from a year ago, making, you know, two and a half, almost three times the uh, cap hit. So in terms of getting value for money, it just didn't happen. And to lay it all on the feet of the GM is probably not fair, but at the same time, he had other options. I mean, he could have let Paul Yarby walk as a, as a restricted free agent and use the $3 million for something else. And at the time, it seemed a no-brainer. Well, keep this guy. He showed so much promise last year. He got sick, and then, you know, his game fell off after that. But this year, he just never had it. <clears throat> and uh, he did well, I think, in the end to be able to simply trade off that entire contract and not have to retain anything at all on it and put that uh, $3 million to use that right at the deadline. So he kind of saved himself there. But uh, <clears throat> in both cases, and again, uh, the Kane contract, like Kane this year, he scored uh, uh, 
16 goals in 41 games. So that's a third, just over 30 goal pace. And then in the playoffs, he had just, what was it, two goals and three assists, three goals and two assists in the playoffs. And he was a minus in the regular season and a minus in the playoffs. And his, you know, it wasn't just that he wasn't finishing, but his passing, his defensive game wasn't that strong. No, he was very, very noticeable as an intimidator, you know, going out there and bashing bodies and having that swagger that you like so much. Um, but it wasn't backed as much by results compared to last year when he was, he just went uh, nuts in the playoffs with, you know, 13 goals and, and uh, uh, he was doing all kinds of damage on the score sheet. So all three of those guys, you know, he took a $3 million raise, Evander Kane from what admittedly was a very low cost prior. But if you look at the fullness of his contract, you could say, well, that's another guy who didn't quite deliver up to the level expected. And clearly in his case, the uh, excuses slash reasons that he wasn't able to perform, like getting a great big gash in his uh, wrist from a skate or getting his ribs busted or getting a finger or thumb broken in the playoffs. I mean, all those things um, uh, are mitigating factors. But at the same time, you're, you're looking at your GM and saying, well, you're the guy signing the 31 or 32-year-old power forward to a four- or five-year deal. And, you know, I mean, Vander Kane right now is the same age that James Neal was uh, when he arrived in Edmonton. Another power forward who had been very good for a very long time, but he was just getting very near the end of the line, and it came up quick. So I'm going to say jury's still a little bit out on that one. And the Yamamoto and Poli Arby signings proved to be um, uh, poor investments for this past season. So I'll take them as my collective bad thing. Yeah, I I I'm in the same boat as you. Didn't it? I when when all those contracts were signed, um, you know, the only one I I was a little bit thinking about was the second year on the Yamamoto deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking, is that necessary? Like, did, is that really wise? Did you need to do that? Uh, although he did have a good season, he didn't have a good playoff last year necessarily. But he, like just like this year, he made some big plays in the playoffs last year, and he he made some big plays in the playoffs this year, like one or two, right? He scored that huge goal against LA, and last year he set up Tyson Berry on a big goal. But that was the only thing I would have uh, the Pulley Arby contract. I thought that was good to bring him back, and the Kane deal. Um, I was in favor of that as well. So I'm, I, it's hard for me to uh, like I just would note that in making any criticism of any of those moves. I think the you know the the people are, you are right to be wary of Kane's future. Power forwards in the NHL have a best before date, and it's usually about 30 or 31. And um, we'll see. I mean, Kane is an amazing physical specimen. There is extreme extenuating circumstances this year in terms of the injuries that he suffered. So I'm I'm certainly like, you know, but, but hockey players do break down. Their bodies do get beat up. They do get injuries that they can't recover from. And that happens most often as they get to be Kane's age. So we'll see how this goes in the next few years. Um, he does present a little bit more than either Neil or Lucic in terms of the intimidation factor. Like even if he's less of a player than he was in his first year in Edmonton, which is which is likely, Um I don't. I I just always felt that like, like Lucic intimidation factor was pretty much gone, by by the time he couldn't play play anymore because he just couldn't keep up. He couldn't make a hit. Kane is still fast enough. Um, he just lays on wicked hits. Yep. I mean, the hitting he did on Peter Angelo in that series was 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 enormous. So he did bring that aspect of his game and will going forward. But you're right; it's something to be concerned about. Um, my bad thing, Bruce, is the obvious thing. And, and this is also a deal which at the time I supported. I was leery about, like, you know, you just never know. But the Jack Campbell signing, um, five years, at, I think it's five million. And it's got four more years to go. That's a lot of money. The owners needed another goalie at the time. Um, they were in competition for another, a few other goalies. Uh, who ended up in Washington, the um, Colorado goalie? 
um, what's his name? Darcy Kemper. Darcy Kemper. Mm -hmm. I don't think he had a very good year either. There was another Vili Husso. I think he went to Detroit and had not a bad year. So anyway, the Oilers were in the running. Um, they needed another goalie. This was the this was the market price for Campbell. And as I noted at the time and continue to note, he had about five or six pretty good pro seasons in a row in terms of save percentage. Um, he had had a bad second half in Toronto, but he had also apparently been playing with a broken rib. So, um, you know, that this, when you make bad free agent contracts, it can kill your team. I mean, we saw this with Lelucic signing. That was such a devastating blow to the Edmonton Oilers to have a player earning that amount of money who just could not come close to performing at that level. And um, the Oilers have a number of high contracts now. So it would make sense that at least one or maybe one or two, like, aren't going to work out. I mean, some of them worked out. Like the bang for buck they got in the regular season, at least from Nugent Hopkins and Hyman, was out of this world. And... Um, you know, some of them aren't going to work out uh, each year, but you just need them to, and they often won't work out because of injury in that particular year, but you do need the, these big deals to work out. And obviously Jack Campbell, if this doesn't, if he has another year, this coming year, like uh, this past year, I mean, then you are going to be looking at buying him out or, or moving him at, at huge cost to your team. And it will be a very difficult thing from for the Oilers to dig out of, although not impossible. Yeah, difficult. I mean, sometimes these goalies, I mean, they're voodoo, as we all know. I mean, for years, people pointed to the Sergei Bobrovsky uh, seven years, a $10 million kind of maximum contract that he got from Florida and laughed. Well, who's laughing now? mostly Florida fans, because Bobrovsky's looking like Dominic Hasek in net for them these days as they're roaring through uh, to uh, towards the Stanley Cup Finals. I'm not sure how there was one nothing when I left the game tonight. We were podcasting on Monday evening. But anyways, uh, uh, you never know when they might bounce back. But there are several suggestions of the Campbell um, contract that maybe was a bad bet based on information that was available at the time. Uh, and that certainly being uh, uh, Campbell's second half of the season, his playoffs, and the fact that he never really recovered his form at any point, just to expect that he'd bounce back when he's healthy, he'll be just great again, was uh, uh, maybe he was good in Toronto's system and maybe not so well designed for Edmonton's. Uh, you know, there's lots of factors at play when goalies change teams, but often they have a poor first year and then they bounce back in the second year. And that's certainly what uh, uh, Ken Holland is praying for with Jack Campbell. Here's Bobrovsky's. Uh, so his last three years in Columbus, he had a save percentage of 931, 921 and 913. So he was going down each of the last uh -huh. three years, but they were still pretty high, very uh -huh. high. His first year, these are his first four seasons in Florida, save percentage of 900, 906, 913, and this past season, Bruce, 901. This is a goalie making $10 million a year. But now in the plus, 935, 935. So like you say, it's just, it's hard to know. And maybe, um, well, we'll get to the, the playoffs with Campbell, yeah, maybe maybe Campbell fun. was ready to turn around even as quickly as these playoffs, and we just didn't get that chance because of decisions by the coach. But uh, yeah, okay. What's your number with uh, Ken Hall and Bruce? Yeah, my number is uh, a peculiar one, and and it's just to do with uh, Holland's goaltending. And this is the fourth year out of four that his starting goalie, and specifically his his goalie who started the playoffs. Uh, was the lower paid of the two netminders by a substantial uh, uh, percentage on his payroll. Now, we'll grant him that he came in here and inherited Peter Shirelli's last blunder, which was the three-year extension to 30-year-old Mikko Koskinen, who had 30 NHL games under his belt and somehow warranted a 4.5 4 million times three, which was untradeable because he had no history. So they couldn't even move him along based on what he'd done in the past. 
So he was kind of saddled with the 4.5 million. That, and he brought in Smith at 2 million plus bonuses. And he played 38 games to 33 the first year over Koskinen. Then he brought Smith back at 1.5 million. And he played 34 games to 25, including all four in the playoffs. And then in 21-22, he brought Smith back for a third different contract for Mike Smith, two years at 2.2. And he played 43 games, including all 16 in the playoffs, compared to Koskinen's 43, but zero in the playoffs. And uh, each year, and then this year, uh, he brings in uh, Jack Campbell as his expensive free agent, and Campbell plays 34 games, and the NHL minimum rookie goalie, Stuart Skinner, plays 48 games. So again, you know, you have uh, this weird situation in net where the higher compensated guy by a large margin is wearing a baseball cap much more often than not. And that's happened now in four out of four years under Ken Holland, including this year's complete flip of the, of the goalies from at least from number one and two last year, the two veterans, Skinner did play a bit, uh, to this year's combo. And yet the exact same uh, uh, thing happened with the, with the, with the net minding that uh, the uh, lesser paid guy got substantially more of the ice time. And then, of course, for Skinner, uh, I said 48-34 in the playoffs, 12 starts to zero. For Skinner, so sixty yeah. to thirty-four overall. Bruce, here's a uh, a Miko Koskinen stat in the goal under the goalies are voodoo category. This mm-hmm. year in the regular season, he signed in the Swiss League with Lugano. He played thirty game, thirty-three games, and he had a mediocre nine hundred save percentage. He's played eight games in the playoffs, and he's got a nine thirty-seven save mm-hmm. percentage. Miko Koskinen dialed it up. So he he did. He just never. It's just so weird no. with goalie teams. Like anyway. Yeah. All right, my number, Bruce. Just real quick, four for four. He's been Oilers GM for four years. Um, the Oilers uh, are have a four out of four year playoff record, and the save percentage has gone from like in the regular season. I think it was like five eighty something uh, points, points percentage, percentage points percentage in their. Um, uh, first year, and it's it got up to 650 something, I think, this year. So the the team has trended up significantly under Ken Holland. Moving on to Jay Woodcroft, Bruce, keep, hold, or fold. Oh, I'm very bullish on Jay Woodcroft, and I'm keep 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 all day long. Keep him for the rest of the 2020s. Well, I wouldn't say that, but I will say keep him definitely. He's, what is it? He's on his, what year is he on his contract here? Uh, this was his first of a three-year deal. All right. Yeah, he's, he, uh, I mean, the owners have done really well under Jay Woodcroft. There was ne- there was hardly a negative thing to say about the, the his coaching um, until a few negative comments came up, which we'll get to uh, regarding this playoff run. And anytime you have a, a brutally disappointing playoff run um, like the Oilers just had, that's going to happen. But um, I agree, he's obviously a keeper. Bruce, what is your good thing about Jay Woodcroft? Uh, I like his his flexibility and his ability, ability to work with what was this year essentially a 21-man roster. For the orders, that's a pretty short-handed roster when you're used to 23, but for cap concerns primarily. Edmonton started the season, went much of the season, with just 21 players, 12 forwards, 70, and two goalies, always. And depending on which player may not be available from one game to the next, if somebody got nicked up or got the flu or something, he could change it in a heartbeat from a 12-6 uh, forwards to defensemen, sort of your standard um, uh, game night roster, four forward lines, three defense pair, uh, to the 11-7, which is sort of the unorthodox ones with the uh, prime numbers of forwards and defensemen. So no, no sort of natural sets that involve everyone. And the ways that he used the seventh defenseman to his advantage and the ways that he used the hole on the fourth forward line to his advantage 
the Oilers were actually a little bit stronger and they had a better record uh, when they went with the, or they have during Woodcroft's regime here, have done better in general with the 11-7 roster than they have with the 12-6. and six. But his ability to switch from one to the other, and I, <clears throat> I'm thinking of one case where they went on the road and they played a just a brutally hard game in Los Angeles, and they went with the 11-7 and every trick that... Uh, uh, that Woodcroft had to maximize his defensemen, to spot in his weaker players, uh, to double shift McDavid and dry settle. And they won a crucial game in Los Angeles, uh, three to one. And the very next night, they went to Anaheim and they switched to a 12 6. And I'm thinking, well, geez, why would you switch out from that winning lineup? And as the game went along, it became more and more obvious. Well, He's not having a double shift McDavid. He's not having a double shift dry saddle. He's able to just roll his lines. He's able to roll his pairings. His team is good enough to beat Anaheim just straight up. There's no reason to be further taxing these guys. This was a back-to-back. And so he sort of played played the one team to the strategic maximum advantage, and then he played the other team straight up. So he did not push any of his you know bigger players on two consecutive nights, and the Oilers rolled to two consecutive road victories in the process. And I thought it was just sort of brilliant use of both stratagems in a, in a very short interval. It's just one one highlight of how, how he handled that. My uh, good thing with Jay Woodcroft, Bruce, has been his development and use of younger players. And he has not been perfect. There's been criticism of him, for instance, um, this year not using Dylan Holloway enough. Although uh, I think Woodcroft in his press conference said, you know, they might have used him more, but he got injured in Bakersfield when he went down there. So by the, you know, that, that was a a factor. You know, you could say Philip Broberg, it's taken a while for him to break in. At the same time, the Oilers had weirdly good health on their defense core this year. Hmm. And there was normally Philip Broberg probably would have played 75 games with normal injuries, but nobody got hurt. And um, how rare is that? So, um, yeah, in both cases, um, but Philip Broberg got a fair amount of ice time, a fair amount of games, and was often the seventh D-man. So I'm, I, I think both players are developing nicely. They haven't been rushed, that's for sure. Definitely and they, they, should be, they should be ready. They should, I see both of them as good to go. I like both of those players. But, man, he has done a good job with some other players. Evan Bouchard, case in point. Um, one of the b- benefits of the Ekholm trade was moving out Tyson Berry, a very good player for the Oilers. But it was time. It was time, Bruce. Evan Bouchard mm-hmm. was ready for more ice time. And we don't know how much of the trade was made, perhaps, on a recommendation from the coach that Evan Bouchard's ready. But you'd have to think he'd be consulted on that. And if he said, no, 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 we, we, we've got to mm-hmm. keep tight. Bouchard's is not ready for that. But oh. Evan Bouchard proved he was more than ready for that. And he, he you know, he's 23. He just, he just, he just exploded as an, as an attacking player. I think I read somewhere saying like, there's a chance at the end of the year, they were saying there's a chance Evan Bouchard could be a, an elite NHL attacker. I mean, there's a chance he could be. He is, he is an elite NHL attacker right he's now. He's a power play. Um, Ryan McLeod worked his way up, mm-hmm. um, and is, uh, played a big role on the third line. Stuart Skinner, a huge role, took over as the goalie. Clean Costin came in, got regular ice time and became a significant contributor. Uh, Vincent DeHarnay, a little older, but a rookie nonetheless, yeah. came in and, and contributed until I think his game was taken away by the roughing in the playoffs. I think there wasn't, like, they weren't going to let him get away with any of the stick fouls he was getting away with regularly in the regular season um, as a rookie. And it did take away his confidence, but he, they stuck with him. And by the end of the Vegas series, he was playing okay again. Was. Now, there's two players, Bruce, Yessi Pugliarvi and Kalor Yamamoto, who haven't panned out necessarily under Woodcroft. But I'm going to say this about those two under Woodcroft. They were given every opportunity yes. to succeed, in my view. And if they, and this is what I said when Pugliarvi, you can say what you want about the player. He got every chance to, to show what he could show in Edmonton. And if he does make it in another city, good for him. But it's not because he was ever going to make it in Edmonton. There was no indication he would ever turn it around in Edmonton. And with Yamamoto, it's it's very close to the same thing now, where he has been given every chance in a, in a feature role 
to excel with the Edmonton Oilers. And if Edmonton decides to move on from him, and he's done better in Edmonton than, than Pugliarvi did, but if they decide to move on from him, we will know exactly what we're giving up and what we could expect in the future in Edmonton from Kyler Yamamoto, I believe. Maybe he'll become, maybe if he gets traded traded or um, bought out, it will spur on some kind of massive development in him, some change in him, necessarily uh, change, which will push him into being a top six forward in the NHL. He's gotten that chance at Edmonton. And Woodcroft gave those two players that chance. So it's not a situation where sometimes you just feel like a, a player just was treated poorly and didn't get that opportunity. But I both of them some, some of the Finnish followers of the Oilers, uh, which I'm not sure if they're following the Oilers anymore now that the Finns are, are uh, uh, few and far between, but they thought Pugliari got a little bit of a raw deal from Woodcroft, I think specifically this season. Last year, he played well in the opening months under Dave Tippett. And then he got um, uh, COVID in Seattle just before Christmas of 2021. And he came back off of that list, and he was just never the same after that. I heard stories that he had long COVID. Uh, He certainly had another injury that he was coping with. And then this year, it just all went away. And if you want to blame that on Jay Woodcroft, well... Fill your boots. Uh, but he went on to Carolina, and none of it's come back in Carolina. I watched him play a couple games there, and, you know, he was playing his position fine. He was cough, He was forcing pucks to get coughed up, but when it came to his stick, there was just nothing. There was no creativity. It was just like it left. And that was what he was, you know, a large part of the excitement was what Paul Yarby as a 17-year-old MVP of the World Juniors was, you know, this is a great big guy who can skate and create plays and score goals and, you know, barge around the wing, how they're going to be able to contain him and, you know, and I got, I got he's Valerie Nuchushkin from the year he scored zero goals and got zero penalty minutes in Dallas before he got a new address and he turned his game around and hopefully that's what happens there but like I say if you want to blame that on the coach he was given ice time based on results and yes just wasn't bringing the results and he wasn't he wasn't last year he was getting the outscoring results where his line was doing great even if he wasn't getting a million points this year yeah, the orders have gotten outscored when he was on the ice, and he was, you know, so he was yeah. ineffective this year. Bruce yeah. as a two-way player. Yeah. He was a, he was one of the worst Oilers wingers as a two-way player after having been one of the best the year year before. Yeah. Which we which is why we were in his camp, which is why we wanted him to get a new contract, which is why yeah. we were good with that, and why we were hopeful heading into this year. And maybe he, he like he he did really play well that season, and maybe he can do that again for another NHL team. Maybe he can figure it out because he he has some. He's he's big. He's fast. He's a hardworking forechecker. He's not a bad defensive player. So he he might still have a future in the NHL. It wasn't going to be in Edmonton, obviously. Bruce, um, your uh, bad thing about uh, Jay Woodcroft. Yeah, I'm going to harp on something that may even have come up in our last podcast with Kurt. I'm trying to remember now exactly how who who got what, but uh, I think uh, uh, Woodcroft's handling of his goaltenders. Uh, specific in the Vegas series, uh, it was less than fully effective, and it was it was like he had and he explained himself on this just fine on the Bob Stoffer, uh, what is now show lately about how Skinner would have a bad game and they'd go back to him and he'd bounce back and have a good game. Well, and that happened in the LA series where Campbell came in, Jack Campbell came in and played 50 minutes of uh, of one, you know one goal against hockey to keep Edmonton in a the game they ultimately won with a big comeback 5 to 4 in overtime and he went back to Skinner the next game and the Oilers won I didn't think Skinner was that great but he played well enough to win and then everybody was vindicated well after game 3 of the Vegas series Skinner got blown out in Edmonton Campbell came in basically shut the door Back to Skinner in game four, and he won. So another nice bounce back for Skinner. But then game five, he had another p- poor game, and he was gone after second period with four goals against again. And Campbell came in the third period, and he was terrific. And and kept the Oilers at least within spitting distance in the third period. And by this time, I'm thinking to myself, well, and we talked about the podcast that night. Who do we start in that next game? And the idea was, 
Well, Campbell keeps coming in and slamming the door after Skinner has given up three or four. At a certain point, you got to say, well, I love the coach's belief in the young goalie, but where's his belief in the old goalie? He keeps saying, well, we're a two-goalie team and stuff. Well, Campbell, from April 1st to the end of the season, he, he let in three goals in basically four hours of play. Three goals against in four hours. And he never got one start in the playoffs. And to me, game six at minimum, some people argue game four of the uh, of the uh, Vegas series was the time to bring him in. What I do know is goaltending beat them in that series, and Edmonton never really did anything about it. Bruce, I... Um... I, I, I think your critique is fair. I don't think goaltending was the main reason they lost that series. Um, I think, and I wrote a post on this, mm-hmm. I, and I, I, I would have agreed with you before I, I dug into the numbers, but you look at the grade A shots differential in that series, mm-hmm. it was exactly the same as the mm-hmm. LA series, and it was exactly the same as the regular season. The only orders were up. Up about two and a half, three grade A shots a game, which should be enough. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not total dominance. It's not going to guarantee you under all circumstances. So yes, I I think that goaltending was one factor in losing that series. But I think the main thing was the Oilers were getting all kinds of grade A shots on net, and mm-hmm. Vegas had good goaltending. But I didn't see Dominic Hasek standing on your head goaltending. I saw some some good puck luck, some good bounces. And even in that sixth game in the first period, I mean, Nuge and Hopkins, in the first period, the orders are up two to one. Nuge comes off the wing and he just, just by the, he just raises his shots a little higher and it goes over the blocker it's in. Then we have Yamamoto uh, charging into the slot. He gets, he gets poke checked, but the puck bounces off a Vegas defenseman, hits the goalie right into Hill by good luck. And, um, and, and then it bounces away. Nuge is charging in. No one's on him. If the puck goes to him, it's a goal, and it's three to one. Just before then, Hyman put the puck into the slot. It hits a stick and almost goes through the goalie's legs. And then Kane is charging in, and there's no one on him. And the puck is just, it just doesn't come right to him. It's a wide open net. If it doesn't, it's a goal for sure. These are the moments. This is why this series is so frustrating fundamentally, I think, is because we all saw an Oilers team that was good enough to win. And um, there was small things. There was, and I'm going to get to another one that, that, that was a problem, I think. There was the, the goaltending. But fundamentally, I think we saw an Oilers team that was a little bit better than Vegas is the truth in terms of run of play. And they couldn't get it done despite that. And that's just hockey. Hockey is a game which is governed as much as any sport, uh, any of the major sports, probably more mm-hmm. than any other others by puck luck. And there's been studies on this. I put a YouTube video on my uh, blog post on this where a professor looked into it and makes, a, I thought, a fairly convincing argument about puck luck being, you know, hockey is more of a game decided by luck than other sports. And this was a this was a really hard example for the Oilers. And I think it just, it's it's why we're all so frustrated. Because they were so close and they were so good, mm-hmm. but they couldn't get it done because they didn't get the bounces. So, well, Vegas got a, I think, the winning goal in that last game where they fired in a shot on Skinner and it hit him and it went straight up into the air and came straight down behind him and landed right in the blue paint about a foot from the goal line. And, yeah, that, you know. Yeah whether you want to call that a bad rebound or just more puck luck or whatever. I mean, it was actually a pretty good stop he made on a hard shot. It wasn't like he had a lot of chance to direct it, but man, oh man. I mean, yeah, and Aiden Hill's like was... rebounds were not landing on sticks of opponents for tap-ins. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah, but it was just, that was just, I just think it's luck. I don't think it was like Aiden Hill's this great goalie, like mm-hmm. all due respect. Um, those plays, watching those plays. And Bruce, this is my experience. You and I have watched a lot of grade A shots many times. We've done this video review. And what has struck me just repeatedly is how little difference there is between a grade A shot and a goal. Mm-hmm. And it's just often a matter of luck. It's often a matter of where the puck bounces that particular moment. If it's through a screen, if he hits a defenseman, ticks off a stick ever so slightly, if it's through a defenseman's legs, if the rebound goes here as opposed to there, like by by a, an inch or at half an inch, or if the goalie's pad is a half inch here, it's just so close. And that, you know, 
So yeah, the best teams in hockey tend to win, but not even in a seven-game series. Yeah. You so the the goal of Woodcroft and the Oilers, their their focus now is to be that much more dominant. So even if they get in a tight series mm-hmm. like this, they'll be so strong defensively that they'll still win. I mean, that's their yeah. whole focus now is to be every good on the attack, but crank it up on defense just one more notch so they can they can win that kind of series that's close. They just got to push their advantage. And I do think it's an advantage that they have. They were a better team than Vegas. And one of the ways they can do this is my bad thing on uh, Jay Woodcroft. And, and there's two, there's a, in the, I'm not sure, like I, I don't watch enough of of the other teams to say this for sure. But in the old days, as recently, you know, recent years, teams used to go with checking lines, playing heavy and hard minutes. And they would play those checking lines against tough, uh, the top line of the other team. And they would play them in the last minute of the of the period. And, you know, for years, certainly during the decade of darkness, and until this year, the Oilers did not have a checking line. They could never find a center who could get the job done. They could never find wingers. They could never find come close to finding anybody. And this year they kind of, they found them and they found a number of players who are candidates. Um, you know, Matthias Janmark was a candidate till he got hurt. Nick Bugstad was a good candidate. Um, and then, but they settled on Derek Ryan, Warren Fogle and Ryan McLeod, who in terms of the shots um, w- was a dominant line against Vegas. But would Jay Woodcroft and, and always went power against power. He always went with his top two centers, McDavid and Drysaddle. Uh, either on the same line or on other lines, um, or he tried to get a second line with Nick Bugstad, ha- uh, Nugent Hopkins, and Hyman to go against the power lines. Uh, so this was the theory, and this is a really good theory too. Like I'm not saying this is a terrible idea. The idea is your best players, to, if you're going to win in the NHL, your best players must learn to beat the other players um, at even strength. And there's going to be some hard lessons along the way. And there was some really hard lessons this year for especially the dry side of line in game six, where they got outscored on uh, two to nothing against the Eichel line in the, in the key game. And dry Settle was forlorn after the game. So um, now you could just say, okay, lesson learned. Leon's going to come back. They'll all come back and they'll have learned and they'll play better defensive hockey. And y- yeah, they're going to have to do that. But you could also go a different route and you could have had the McLeod line out against the Eichel line in that series. And I just wonder if they had done that, like in terms of coaching strategy, I just I just wonder if that might not have gone better for the Oilers, where they put that line out there and their job was just to nullify. And you have Derek Ryan, who is as smart as hockey, a defensive hockey player as there is in the NHL. You have Fogel, who was playing at a high level of two-way hockey. And McLeod, a little bit iffier. Like, and this, maybe this was their hesitation. They just thought Ryan McLeod doesn't have the defensive quite yet defensive toughness and fundamentals to be able to handle Jack Eichel. That, that would have been, it was a tall order and I can see them backing away from that. But I personally think he was probably a better bet than Bukestad or Dreisaitl. But it's, 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 that wasn't fast enough to, to handle Jack Eichel. Yeah. So McLeod, McLeod might've risen to that challenge and, I would have gone with it. Personally, that's what I wanted to see. And I, and I think if you go listen to the previous podcast, I'm not just saying this now. This is something that I was saying previously. So to me, that would have been an interesting strategy. I, I don't know if it would have worked. Um, I, I would have liked to have seen it tried and tried more in this coming year. Try it in 20, 30 games this coming year. Go for it. See if you can get a checking line. Yes. Yeah, I like the 20, 30 game trials. And there's lots of things you could do in the first half of next season uh, to see what exactly what you've got. But uh, um, the Woodcroft's um, uh, rationale was that he liked the matchup of McLeod against William Carlson specifically. And that Carlson, they were trying to deploy Carlson against McDavid, so he would counter with McLeod. But what that meant uh, was that after every TV timeout, uh, McDavid would be on the bench because uh, Bruce Cassidy just kept rolling William Carlson over the boards after every TV timeout. And, you know, so I think Jay maybe lost a little bit of the bigger picture there in terms of the, the matchup of the moment. Uh, here's an idea. Put McDavid out for, for a shift against Carlson after the TV timeout. Score! 
And then maybe Bruce Cassidy has to do something about how he yes. wants to do his matchups, you know. So, uh, yeah. but that scoring part was kind of kind of missing, unfortunately. So they only got yeah. nine nine five on five goals in six games. So just not enough. What is your number, Bruce, for Jay Woodcock? Yeah, I'm going to go with 683, and that's uh, Woodcock's uh, winning percentage as an NHL. Sorry points percentage, cockamamie points system percentage as the NHL head coach since being called up in uh, uh, February 10th of uh, 2022. He's now coached 120 regular season games uh, with 76 wins, just 32 uh, regulation losses and 12 other losses for 683 points percentage. That's tied with Carolina Hurricanes, a very, very good team second overall in the NHL since that date with only this year Boston Bruins who set some records in the regular season this year being ahead of both of those teams. So right up there with the NHL elite in other words and the Oilers had lots of other uh, sort of underlying statistics this year that suggest that they were the elite team in the Western Conference during the regular season but they just didn't get the, the points the way the point system worked was against the Oilers this year. And uh, they had, uh, but they're still right there, second in the conference and, and improving. And both times the team was great in the second half of the season, which basically was Woodcroft's whole time the first year he was here. And then this year they really picked it up past the midway point and were just in the fourth quarter almost unbeatable. So his record... In, Regular season and playoffs a little, you know, 14 wins, 14 losses in two years, but three playoff series wins, including, you know, at least one in each season. So, you know, success there, if not quite enough of it to satisfy all of us quite yet. But uh, he's got a, he's got, you know, he's been the coach for 15 months, David, and I think he's just developed a glistening track record to this point, even as we've left with some questions after the Vegas series, I have supreme confidence that he's going to learn from that too and uh, be a better, stronger coach for it. Yeah. You know, and I was listening to his interview with Bob Stoffer on Friday and it was him mm-hmm. that brought up in a very careful way the, the point that I then made more strongly in my own post that there was some shooting luck that played a factor in there. He was Definitely. very careful in saying that, but it, it was a fair comment on his part, I think. So, and I want to, I want, like he noted that, and I think he, it was reasonable to do so. Um, he didn't stress it, um, and he stressed the fact they got to go over this with a fine tooth comb. But it was a good point. And what he did stress with the, was team defense, how that's got to get better. And I think that is how you're going to win this kind of series, which is between two, where, where, where you, the Oilers are the better team, but they're not so good that they can't be beat, obviously. They're not right. so much more dominant that they didn't give up a lead in every game, for instance, which was really yep. frustrating. But lost, so, yeah. so they do have to crack the whip on defense and in, in net. They got to get better mm-hmm. at both things, and uh, I think they're going to do that. Yeah. I think that's I think that's going to be um, the um, modus operandi of this uh, the theme of the coming year. Bruce, uh, my number uh, with Woodcroft when when um, Dave in Dave Tippett's last. Um, season with the Oilers, he he coached 44 games, and um, the Oilers were pretty mediocre in those 44 games. They were starting to become a sieve on defense uh, in the in his last game, giving up too many odd man rushes. The grade A um, shots differential in in Tippett's 44 games was uh, 1.3 plus 1.3 for the Oilers, so they were just marginally a whisker better, a hair better then um, somewhat better than the uh, the opposition teams uh, in in his last half season with the orders before he got fired. As soon as Woodcroft got over, uh, got got uh, hired up, um, they were plus 2.1 for the rest of the year. This past year in the regular season, they were plus 2.9 grade A shots per game, almost three a game. In the playoffs, they were plus 2.8 per game. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they have become a dominant team. That's almost like four grade A shots equals one goal. So they're up three grade A shots a game. It's 0.075 goals per game that translates to. That's that's a pretty good margin in the NHL. And um, 
I just think um, they're they're headed in the right direction. Clearly, under under Jay Woodcroft, he's done a fantastic job. So and that's right, re- and that's reflected in this Grade A shots differential. Mm-hmm. Yep, just trending up. And you'd like to think, you know, if you get three more shots like that in a game, your chances of winning that game are something more than fifty percent. And if you're doing that consistently over a seven game series, your chance of winning four of those seven games is considerably more than fifty percent. Didn't happen this year, and the Oilers, uh, I mean, they're, they, uh, Vegas had a 3% higher shooting percentage than the Oilers did, whereas all season long, the Oilers were generally about 2% better than their opposition. It was a five-point five swing there, and it was just too much. And they, yeah, and the power plays became kind of few and far between for one of the teams. Let's leave it there, Bruce. Thanks for talking there. tonight. Thanks, Thanks for talking tonight. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>